0: and welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy, a show about the misfits, rebels, and idealists shaping our world and the ideas, influences, and lessons that propelled them to the top of their game. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, we sit down with Ryan Boykin to explore his journey as a serial entrepreneur and investor in real estate. And Ryan's journey is incredible. We explore how he got started investing in Detroit in the depths of the 2009 financial crisis, how he raised more than a billion dollars to invest in single-family residential homes across the U.S., And how he founded and scaling his latest company, Reactive, in the commercial real estate space. In this episode, you'll learn how Ryan thinks about risk and reward, including how he takes advantage of opportunities that are disguised as gut-wrenching risk, the lessons he's learned as a serial entrepreneur, building Atlas, Archipelago, and now Reactive, and his advice for entrepreneurs, including why he's building a venture-backed company now after building multiple bootstrap companies, and a ton more. This is one of my favorite interviews ever. To learn more about Reactive, visit Reactive, R-E-A-C-T-I-V dot I-O. You can find our show notes with our favorite quotes, links, and clips from this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 43. For more from Outlier Academy, please follow us on Twitter at Outlier Academy and subscribe to our new channel on YouTube, which you can find at youtube.com slash academy. Every week, we share a few of our favorite two to three minute clips from the latest episode. Subscribe to get notified when new videos drop each week. And now, let's jump in with Ryan Boykin. Ryan Boykin, welcome to Outlier Academy.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So... I've been looking forward to this conversation for an incredibly long time. We've been talking about this for a while. We had a call to map out where we we're going to discuss a while ago, and this has been on my mind for a long time. And the umbrella I was thinking about this conversation underneath is lessons and risk reward in entrepreneurship and using that to explore your journey, as well as a bunch of the things you've learned throughout the course of your life and your career so far. And I typically ask a really different starting question, which is to share your background. But since today we're going to go through that in detail and extrapolate out a bunch of things to learn, I want to start with a very different question, which is when you're asked, what do you do? What is your answer? (laughs)
1: Oh man, what a great start. I almost don't even want to give an answer because I feel like it'll take so long to explain. We spend so much time in all of our companies talking about our elevator pitch and how you get somebody captivated in a 15 second comment and how you get them to ask a question. And I got to really learn to practice what I preach. What I do is I start businesses and they've ranged across many different fields and industries. And I think that if you map these different businesses on a piece of paper you'd say what does this one have to do with this one or this one have to do with this one and really when i look at it it's i start businesses that do two things i hope the first one is is i think that business is the best vehicle that our world knows to utilize to solve big problems and it's my greatest motivation is to use business to solve problems and then i think that when you retrench on Capitalism and the marketplace that we participate in, I try to identify businesses wherein the cards are weighted in my favor so that I have a chance for success. One of my oldest mentors said to me 15 years ago every new business that you ever start requires a miracle to have success. And I could just not agree with that anymore. It is just so tough. And he also said, make sure you never start a business that requires two miracles. If you have a two miracle deal, just kill it on day one. And that's sort of to say that you have to start businesses with an eye towards what they will become, but also an eye towards some of the risk associated with it. And a two miracle deal requires way too much risk. And you got to walk away from those before you start them.
0: It's fascinating. That. First part of your answer, I would love to explore a little bit more because I've thought about that many times and I think that I agree with you. I think that businesses are an incredible tool to solve some of the biggest problems we face. I also think that's really controversial and we live in a time where a lot of people would push back on that. Why do you think that's the case and why do you think other tools just aren't able to achieve the same impact or same effect?
1: You know, sadly, we're living in a moment, no matter what you say, it can be controversial to somebody. And I think even before I answer your question, I just want to lean into this moment of saying that when I choose to perceive the world as tough, the world reflects itself to me as tough. And when I choose to perceive the world as beautiful and positive, I realize that I am surrounded by positivity in every little corner of my life and that that is my human experience. And I choose to participate in that field a little bit more. So that's a commentary that's less about the business and more about how we see the world. My commentary about business being the best vehicle through which we can solve problems and actually ultimately change the world really just comes down to, our world is governed by business, it's governed by capitalism, it's governed by the flow of our economy. And if I'm able to do something that can make money and at the same time serve every single stakeholder that touches it, and at the same time do something good for the planet, do something good for our environment, then everybody else is going to see that. And because I have a little success on it in this little measured way that we call money and profitability, the whole world will copy it. And in copying it, we're actually raising the bar. We're making the world a better place. And so my notion behind it is that if we can do something good and people then see that and replicate it, then that's okay. And really business is sustainable. The nonprofit world, the religious sector, governmental, it requires constant feed and constant fuel for the system to continue to turn. Profitability, while it can be really tough if not administered correctly, also ensures that something is sustainable and can survive. We all have to check the survival box before we can figure out what we really care about in life and business enables us to survive so that we can really become good stewards and serve.
0: I love that definition. I could... Listen to you expand on that for another 30 plus minutes. And I think that's the right definition of business. The one that you defined there where it's not only about ideally being sustainable, which means being profitable. That's the only way you're sustainable. But it also means serving all the stakeholders in that business. And I think that if that was the common definition that most people pursued, most people thought about as business, that maybe business would be perceived better. But I think a lot of people perceive it as extortionist or you're, I don't know, if you've been able to achieve success, there's, you've done something wrong. And I don't think that's the case at all. The thing I like about business too is, you know, business is inherently about skin in the game. You have to take risk in order to launch something. You have to put capital at work. Work in order to grow a business. And there's something really reciprocal and aligned with nature about that. I'm curious how you think about and define an entrepreneur. So if that's maybe how you think about a business, what is an entrepreneur? Or maybe if you don't want to define it, how do you think about what it entails to be an entrepreneur?
1: I don't know that I'd be the best person to define an entrepreneur, but there's a couple thoughts that come to mind when you share that with me. The first one is is that in the American society today that I've experienced, I don't think that we're really trained all that much to be entrepreneurs anymore. We're told to go to school and get a good grade and go to college and get a job and go take on some debt and pay down the debt and buy a house and you know, all of those things are amazing because they're a defined pathway that is quite certain. If you do those things, you're gonna check your survival box. You're gonna be okay. My survival box my definition of what it looked like to survive was just a little bit different because I want to experience this lifetime. And entrepreneurship was a pathway for me to be able to survive financially, to be able to survive with my relationships by investing deeply into my relationships inside of my business and outside of my business. And those things ensured at a much greater level my survival than the certainty of a paycheck. And I can't emphasize enough, there was about a decade there or so where I wasn't really surviving financially. But had I compared my journey to any of my other peers, I would have never traded it because I was thriving as a vibrant human. I was alive. I was experiencing, consuming this thing we called life. And being an entrepreneur put me at the front seat of that roller coaster ride. And that's something I couldn't have traded. And it's also something that financially... I was very willing to sacrifice financial gain in those moments because I was much more motivated by those other sort of pillars or those other elements of our life. But being an entrepreneur is all about taking risk. And I think it's also all about asking yourself what's broken or where there's a problem in this life and where you see need. You get to be that inventor, as it were. I'm not smart enough to be an inventor. I'm not smart enough to be the mad scientist. I'm just smart enough to see something that is formless and see if I can cobble together a couple of ideas to turn it into something real. And in that sense, I've always wanted to be a builder, but I don't build with physical products all that much. I realize that I build with humans on these things that we call businesses. And and so entrepreneurship for me is about taking a risk, and it's also about having to consume life fully.
0: That's incredible a definition. I'd love to go back and walk through your journey. And there's a lot to explore there. You started out in distressed assets. We'll talk about that. You then moved into operating companies. And now you're building a technology business, which is much more venture capital. And so you've gone through this really interesting progression. And I thought it would be worthwhile to explore each of those. And the first one is very different, at least my take. It's much more about investing and putting capital at work where you saw an opportunity where there was also a lot of risk. And I don't want to give away the story, so maybe I'll just tee up. If you could take us back into time, can you describe what you were seeing, the opportunity that you saw, and how you ended up capitalizing
1: on that? You bet. I think that probably where the story begins as relates to this conversation is 2008 with the financial and subprime foreclosure collapse that we all experienced. I had come out of a different field, a different entrepreneurial vision and journey prior to that, And it's never bad to realize where you got lucky. I had sold my prior business just prior to Lehman's collapse a few months before that in early 2008. And I surveyed the field thereafter and it looked like basically everything in business was broken and what the hell was I going to do with my life and had a little bit of money, but not enough money to make anything really work. And the one thing that occurred to me was real estate was on sale. And we've all heard the adage, real estate is the only thing that goes on sale that people don't buy. And somewhere along that I said it probably makes sense when I can buy this physical product, probably cost $100 to build or $100,000 to build, pick a number, and I can buy it for 25,000. How often can you buy something that costs 25% of its cost to build? Those moments in time I think are quite rare. And what's difficult is if you listened to the noise then you only saw the world as being negative. If you really listened to the media and the noise, everything was falling apart and it was a collapse and it was the end of the system. But if you stepped back and you surveyed your own experience, and I was really fortunate somehow to be able to step back and say, gosh, my experience is people still want to go to work. My experience is people still need to have a roof over their head. And that's the starting point of their journey towards personal fulfillment is their community, you know, their home. And so I gathered a little bit of my own money and I raised some money for some other people. And we started buying real estate at foreclosure sale. And we bought thousands of properties of real estate starting with single family. And this is the most humble beginnings ever, Daniel. We were a fix and flip company. We did maybe 500 fix and flips in our first year of business, buying them for $1 over the asking price of foreclosure sale. And I made every mistake in the book and contractors stole money from me and business partners that didn't work out. But along the way, the cards were weighted in my favor. I was able to get my education in real estate and rarely in life do we get to get an education and get paid to get that education. Rarely in life do we get paid to get that education mostly we have to pay someone else. I go to Stanford, I'm going to pay them a few hundred thousand dollars for my education. In this situation, despite all of our mistakes, we still were able to make some money. And then we continued to buy real estate. And from 2009 until about 2013 or 14, we bought all sorts of single family, multi-family, office, industrial, retail, you name it, every kind of real estate you can imagine. We bought it at bargain basement prices and we did a big value add. And I still own that real estate portfolio today. Everything that I do is very long-term oriented. So I still own all that real estate. And it continued until we had an opportunity to build a business outside of that, but still in the real estate sector. And that came to my sort of second moment in founding another different type of business. So the first iteration from 2008 to about 2013 was all about buying assets. Then in 2013 or 2014, it occurred to me that real estate prices were skyrocketing to the north. And I didn't quite read the tea leads perfectly because had I continued to buy aggressively in 2014 and 13 on through to today, I would have captured a lot more appreciation and I would have captured a lot of upside on my real estate. But from my vantage point, I was saying, you know, this real estate looks a lot more expensive than it did a few years ago. And maybe it costs $200 a foot to build this real estate. And now I can only buy it for $180. Or maybe I have to pay more than the actual construction cost. And so I started to say, I think that I can still make some more money buying real estate, but I think that I'm also not reducing my risk. I think the cards aren't weighted in my favor as much. And I had this other occurrence or sort of thought process, which was, I'm also not that motivated by just making money. And if I just wanted to make money in my life, which I enjoy doing, and it is a motivator for me, then I would keep on building this great real estate portfolio and just playing that game. Instead, I wanted to start to solve some problems. And for my personal journey, I realized that as in so much as I had checked my own survival box in my life, that just reduced the amount of motivation I found in just making more money. And instead, my motivations came to solving problems. And my other main motivation in life is really developing very deep, meaningful relationships in my life. So then I asked myself, what's a problem that I can solve? And the one problem that I lighted upon was this difficulty that I think many people have of how they're going to retire one day. We're in a moment where we don't have pension funds, 401ks don't work particularly well, people are going to have many jobs over many different careers and positions. And if you ask the common Joe how they're doing and saving for retirement, heck, I mean, I think 50% of all baby boomers have less than $100,000 in the bank for savings for retirement. So at that moment, I said, geez, I think I have a solution for this. And my solution was buy a rental property. Keep it really simple. If I go and I talk to you, Daniel, and I have you buy one single piece of rental real estate and you hold that for 20 or 30 years, it'll be paid off. And probably when you become retirement age, it'll be worth three times more than what you buy it for now. And it'll pay you a nice passive income. And imagine if we can do two or three or four of those, you're going to retire. And so what we did is we said, let's take our learnings from owning real estate ourselves. And let's take our learnings from having property managed all of our own real estate across five different states and thousands of doors. And let's share it with people so that we can teach them how to do this. And that's when Atlas Real Estate was born. And today, Atlas Real Estate is a great company. We're a real operating company. We help people to buy investment properties. We help people to make them passive by doing the property management for them. And we also have an investment arm that's paired with some pension funds to help them get return on investment in the single family real estate sector. And we did that at a good moment because it was something that nobody was doing. And because nobody was doing it, we could outperform the competition. And we really aligned interests among the stakeholders, the owners that own the property and the tenants that are in the building as residents, et cetera. And we got that machine working and Atlas is still working. It's a beautiful company and it's got a life of its own. And about a year and a half ago, I said, geez, I'm ready to go start something new and go be an entrepreneur again. And so today, my final business that I'll comment on is Reactive. And Reactive is a prop tech company. So we're a technology company. That's all about solving the problem of the difficulty of leasing commercial real estate. So cut shortly, if you've ever leased commercial real estate before, it probably was a very complex, long, arduous process. And the rest of our society and all of our industries today is uh, click the button and receive the good. And so how do we make commercial real estate simpler for the prime purpose of inviting the entrepreneur of democratizing commercial real estate to enable small business and growing businesses to thrive more quickly and pull down a barrier through one of my own personal experiences of being an entrepreneur, how do we make that an easier journey? Because truthfully, it's a very, very difficult journey. And when we can eliminate one of those barriers, we sort of have an opportunity to ensure that America is still a great place by having great small businesses and young companies build within this beautiful Petri dish. So this is a tech-enabled platform for commercial real estate leasing.
0: That was an incredible description, you know, in a couple of hops all the way back from 2008 to, you know, 10, I guess 12, 13 plus years forward in the future. I want to go back and explore Atlas and Reactive in a little bit more detail. But before we do that, I have to go all the way back to 2008 because I wanted to explore a few things. And one of those is this notion of risk reward and how you were able to be in a place where emotions didn't color your decision-making and you were able to see the opportunity and seize on it. And there's a bunch of different things we can explore there. But I'm curious when you were, I guess, considering that investment, were you ever scared about losing capital? Or in your mind, was that just not even a thing and you just saw the opportunity?
1: Yeah, I was scared as hell. <laughs> Somebody asked me recently kind of what I think I'm good at in business, and I'm frankly not the smartest guy in the room. I have a good head on my shoulders, but I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I basically chalk it up to two things. One is that I work really hard. People can outwork me for sure, but it's gonna be tough. And that's important because when you make these mistakes and you buy the wrong deal and the world is collapsing around you, sometimes you sit back and you say, the only resource I have is hard work to dig myself out of this. So that was one thing that saved me in those moments. But the other thing that I do think I'm a little bit good at is I do have an ability to assess risk and reward. Generally, as humans, we fall on one side of that spectrum quite far on one side of that spectrum or the other. You meet somebody and they all they see is the risk in the deal. And that person generally will spend hours and hours and hours vetting the deal and they'll see every angle. But frankly, they suffer from paralysis by analysis and they never make the bet because they can only see the risk, even though they can also see all the reward. And then you have the other person that says, every deal is going to be a unicorn and a billion dollars and all they see is the reward. They don't ever see any of the risk. I think it's actually a little bit rare and it's something that we're not trained and we're not taught that somebody can actually see the risk and the reward and assess them. So I knew every time that we were buying a property that we might lose our money. But I also knew that the cards were weighted in my favor. And if I was able to get enough bats at plate Eventually, I would hit some balls. And as it turned out, we hit almost every ball because the moment was so good. In retrospect, I probably could have been riskier. I probably could have doubled down. I probably could have done two or three or four times more than what I actually did. That would have been the wise thing to do. So sometimes I say I'm kicking myself for not having gone deeper in that moment. Now, the converse of it is there were so many moments that we thought that the world was actually collapsing. And in those moments, it's really hard to stare that in the eye and still move forward. I do think that both in this moment right now, when we're in a moment of exuberance, for many reasons, pandemic aside, as well as in the moment of complete despair of 2008, those are both potentially bubbles. And what happens in a bubble is they feed themselves. One is a bubble up and the other is a bubble down. But when they're feeding themselves, they're self-fulfilling prophecies. And so we have to realize, okay, take a step away from that, that this is the human propagandas building this either up or down. And how do we see the forest of the trees a little bit? But we made a lot of mistakes along the way, and I got bailed out by a market that's covered. And had it not recovered, I might be sitting in a very different chair right now.
0: Yeah. Two things seem very related with you. The idea to see risk and reward and be able to toggle between those two and ultimately make a decision, which I think you're right, you know, on either end of that spectrum, but especially if you're overweighted on risk, you just never make any calls and you never make any calls that have any risk in them, which is totally doesn't make any sense. And then this other notion of just making sure that the cards are stacked in your favor, because if you do, then, you know, it's almost like that concept of margin of safety. I want to go back to something else you said, which is, you know, you talked about and this is something I think about a lot I feel like it's a very common experience of just being in a moment where the news around something is overwhelmingly negative, where the takeaway, if you were to read all the headlines and just turn off your brain and just conclude what everyone was telling you, is that everything is terrible. It's going to zero. It's never going to recover. This is completely done. And I guess my thoughts on that, it has kind of led me to one, just really disconnect from news and try to be very selective about how I engage with it. But the other is this idea that when that's true... When stuff kind of reaches a fever pitch of negativity, that's often the best time to invest. And so I'm curious, what are your thoughts? What are your conclusions? What are your insights about how to handle overwhelmingly negative news or moments? And then what does that signal to you or what does that lead you to do or lead you to think?
1: You know what, Daniel? I mean, my first thought on this is that we don't spend enough time studying ourselves. And let me go deeper on that. In recent years, I've come to realize as I've studied myself And as I've had real self-reflection, I found that surrounding myself with news and surrounding myself with negativity is literally the worst food I could ever put in my body for myself. I wouldn't eat candy all day, and that's what I'm doing. And so why do I subject myself to that? Well, I subject myself to it because there's this pressure to be up to speed every second. And we get that pressure at every turn, the second we wake up, the notifications, the talking to people around the water cooler, you name it. I don't read any national news. It's completely off. I'm not in any social media whatsoever. And you know what? Sometimes somebody says something and I had no idea was happening and I'm just kind of like, ah, damn, I wish I would have known that. I kind of look like an idiot right now. I'm willing to take that one or two times every year when I miss something that I wish I would have known about in exchange for the other 363 days of the year that are filled with complete positivity, brimming to the top based on what I do choose to surround myself with. And we are a product of what we surround ourselves with. We are what we eat. And so for me, that's how I define fulfillment. That's how I define how I will thrive as a human. Now others may not thrive under that dichotomy. I think what's important is that we truly search and understand and ask ourselves how I'm actually gonna be the best human that I can be. And so that's my starting point on this and that's why I don't surround myself with that so much. I think that sometimes when you're about to make a bet, just to make it simple, when I make a bet, that's starting a new business. And it's a giant bet for me. I'll invest a ton of my own money into it. I'm going to ask other people I know potentially to invest in it with me. And I have tons of reputational risk on that. And I'll tell you, I've never lost more sleep in my life knowing that I might lose somebody else's money. Losing my own money, I almost am like, eh, (laughs) that's going to happen. I can confront that brutal fact. Losing somebody else's, that is some stress for me. And then on top of that, when I make a bet, I'm going to spend minimum five years of my life on this bet. We have one commodity in our life and it's our time. So in those moments when I'm about to engage on something and I'm truly, truly assessing risk and reward, I'm spending a lot of time researching and going down the vortex and speaking to people and trying to peel back the layers, the initial layer that's covered in social media and media and all the things that we see on the surface and try to get deeper to see what the actual experience is so that I hope that I'm coming to conclusion points that can help direct me. In those seminal moments, I'm definitely going deeper to make sure that my conclusion point is accurate. And I think in the other moments, I try to turn down the noise a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think that's super interesting. It makes a lot of sense. And I love that with all these points, you continue to bubble it up to some sort of meta idea, (laughs) which is
1: much more powerful
0: than just engaging or framing it as news versus no news or negativity versus no negativity. I want to ask one more question. And anyone that's had quite a bit of success and a number of instances at bat has plenty of hindsight 2020 moments where they kick themselves in the butt, because that's part of life. You're never going to understand or take all of the turns you quote unquote should have taken. You made a comment talking about you started investing 2008, 2009. You saw prices zooming up in 2013, 2014, and you could have gone much further. And that's something that I've thought about. I know anyone that's an investor struggles with is like, I guess to bubble that up, the idea would be say there was a crash, you got in at the crash. Now things are starting to accelerate up. Do you push it? Do you continue to keep investing? And so the question I want to ask you there was, you said that you could have doubled down, but you didn't. So clearly there's an observation there. When you're heart to heart, like, what is your takeaway? Do you think that you made the exact right decision in the time? Do you think that you should have been investing all the way until the moment where the market cycle turns over? Has that changed any of how you approach that?
1: I think that when I reflect back on that time period, what I was asking myself is, what type of company do we want to be? Is my opus going to be that I'm a real estate company and I'm going to figure out how to be a real estate company at all times, up market, down market, sideways, you name it, and that we're going to be a real estate company that's a developer. We're going to be a real estate company that is a true long-term passive cash flow core offering. We're going to have a fund or fund of funds. If that would have been my long-term vision as the thing that I wanted to do in life, then sure, I could look back at that moment and say, I had all the tools at my disposal like nobody else in their business ever has with an IRR that's irreplicable and but that's not what motivates me. And frankly, I still am doing that because we have businesses that are ongoing that are living. These businesses are way bigger than I am, way bigger. And that was my goal was to create something that was bigger than me. And that something had to be good for you, good for me and good for everything. And if I could do that, that was my goal. And so I just didn't want to stop by just defining it as real estate. I talked about the value of time. I wanted to enable this possibility that my time could also be used to create another something beautiful. And that beautiful thing could also be bigger than me and could serve more people and could be something good for the planet. So I definitely don't have regret with the pathway that we took. Sometimes you have to look via different lenses. And if my goal was just to make money, then maybe that would have been the best pathway. My goal isn't just to make money. And who's to say that I didn't make more doing it this way? I have no idea, but that just isn't my measuring stick. I will also not be so Pollyannish to say that it's not a measuring stick. I'm in the capitalist world. I want to use that as a measuring stick, but I don't think it's the primary or even the secondary. There are many others that are much more important to me. And by the way, one last thing, Daniel, this has been the funnest journey on the damn planet. To say that I would have done something different the days that I was beat down, crying my eyes out on the floor, couldn't pay the mortgage, I wouldn't trade them. I want to live. I want to experience. I want to eat this terrible, hard challenge and then get up from it and say, we made it through another battle. That's who I am.
0: It's much more about the progression and the evolution rather than just optimization. And I think that that's super interesting. For you, it's like you're okay to stop pursuing a certain opportunity to pursue a new one. Take that leap of faith. I think this speaks to a lot of things because I know people who could be plenty successful in five different fields, but they stay in one field because it's like, here it is. I've got it. I can't give it up. I don't want to lose it. And it's this very fear-based mentality. Is that kind of how you think about that? And so that enables you to be really comfortable taking that leap to the next thing?
1: Yeah, I think that actually something for those people and something for myself that I've discovered is that in those moments where I've got something working and I'm like, oh, why would I ever leave this? This is working. I've got it all here. One of the things that I've come to realize, and I give amazing credit to the CEO of Atlas Real Estate, Tony Julianel, hey, there's probably somebody better than me at doing this. This company could be 3x or 5x better in serving the humans that it touches if I get out of the way. That's the coolest thing ever. The company could be stronger. If I have a different role, a smaller role, who's the next person to be the leader of this? And how do we ensure that we develop those other future leaders through all the different caveats and corners of the business? And then how do we get even more mission-driven to be able to help a resident to purchase a home one day so they can actually have a chance at financial security? to help my parents' generation to figure out how they're not going to be destitute when they're 70 and 80 years old because they don't have the money in the bank. So I think that viewed under a different lens, that conversation becomes quite easy. And I think that the battling point becomes our ego. And I've had to have that battle and I haven't resolved it. I don't know what human that I've met has resolved it. I'm grateful for the battle though, because as I reflect Introspectively, I realize, hey, I have some other good that I can express and try, and I have a better opportunity to have success with it because I'm at survival and because I have more resources at my disposal. And there's actually more cards weighted in my favor at this stage than they were when I was younger.
0: I want to ask one more question, then we'll move on. And for the distressed asset piece, I mean, you made a note and we've talked a little bit about just how successful that string of investments in distressed assets was, you know, distressed real estate. But what I want to ask specifically is you ultimately were able to be incredibly successful, print a really, really high IRR. I think what I've noticed is when that happens, one, what that means is you are almost 100% certain to never hit that level of IRR again. And if you're an investor, that can feed in your mind. And two, and I think why that's difficult is one, it's because it's the world and the results and just life pointing at luck, (laughs) pointing at timing and not pointing at you. And that's hard to take. But then the other is just this idea that you ultimately then have to get over that notion that your goal is just to make more and more successful investments at higher and higher returns, which isn't a reality. And so the question I want to ask you is, was it difficult? for you to get over that? Do you wrestle over, oh, I'm not making the returns I made then? Just how do you not have this be this charge thing after that amount of success?
1: Two thoughts on that. First one is it's always tricky to deal in absolutes and we'll never have that IRR again. I mean, who knows? If you were a Bitcoin investor over the last couple of years, you had way better IRR. And I don't understand that world. That world to me is speculation. I've gotten lucky with it a little bit because of some friend that understands it better. But we just don't know what the future will bring. And so maybe there will be those golden moments again. I do agree. I was completely lucky to be in a moment where I could make a bet. I was young. I didn't have too much to lose. I wasn't too jaded by prior experience. There was a lot of luck in that story. The second component to your question is one that I definitely struggled with there was a lot of deals that I didn't buy because they weren't as good as the ones before. But if you put them on the table right now, people would run over each other trying to get them. I think actually there was an investor that I really enjoy, Howard Marks, and he said this best. And it actually was the seminal changing point to my ability to view the investment world a little bit differently. He said, and this was recently that he said it, we're in a low yield environment. And when you're in a low yield environment, you need to expect a low yield return when you're in a high yield environment, you can expect a higher yield return. And if you ever see those two things not matching, then that's an early indicator that you're taking on too much risk or you're overweighting too much reward. And so in a low interest rate environment like we're in, we're going to have lower yield. And that's the investment environment that we're in. So become more comfortable with it because of that. It's another way of saying when we have more certainty in the system, then we're going to have a lower return. When there's higher uncertainty in the system, then we should expect higher return. And that's a good way of assessing risk and reward. That was pretty well put in that way and helped to put my mind at ease on that. Then the other thing is, is that I'm a very, very long-term oriented person. When I build a business, I think about it over a decade or longer. Atlas, I hope, lasts decades and decades. My real estate, I know I'll own for 20 or 30 years. Reactive is a little bit more unique in terms of the approach that we're taking, and maybe it'll be a little bit shorter time frame. but I'm very long-term oriented. Well, if you're long-term oriented and you sit back and you just get a 10% IRR every year for 10 or 15 or 20 years, forget about it. It's a ton of money. People get so IRR focused. And because you're so IRR focused, you get these giant IRRs, but then your money sits on the sideline for a period of time as well. And you have to take more risk to do it. Well, if I'm getting a very low risk, 10 12 15% IRR, that is an irreplicable return in many respects. And I can do it for a decade. That's very achievable, even today in real estate. Part of that is because we're in a low interest rate environment on the debt that you can procure. And so it's important to realize that. But if I can get fixed long-term debt, cheap fixed long-term debt next to rents in an appreciating rent environment and an appreciating asset environment, that's going to work out really favorably for me over the long term. And that's essentially what we teach people at Atlas.
0: I want to continue on and compare and contrast your experiences and try to pull out Secrets, insights, interesting things. And one thing you've touched on a number of times is just being long-term oriented. And I know from your track record, I know from talking with you that that seems to be something that's like very deeply rooted in your value system. And that's something that I think is very peculiar. Because I know almost no one that doesn't say they're long-term oriented, but 99.9% of those people, when you actually compare their actions to their words, they're not at all long-term oriented. You know, And examples of that are someone says they're building a business, they want to have it for 10 years, two years later they are out of it or they flip it or they sell it. there's not necessarily a good or bad question, but I do think there's something I pride myself on being long-term oriented. I really try to do that. It's important to me for a number of reasons. So I would just love to dig in, why is that so important? important? important to you? And was there a defining moment, a defining story, a defining figure in your life that helped plant that there?
1: I'm not sure if there was a defining figure in my life, but there have been defining moments. I think that sometimes people talk about being long-term and then they end up being shorter term. A lot of money is dangled in front of them in many of those instances. And you've just been through this champion's walk of fire for five or 10 years of building a business. And For anybody that hasn't built a business before, hopefully they can hear this and they can hear it's really damn difficult. If anybody that has built it, I think they would corroborate. It was way harder than they thought it was. So you get tired, okay? You just get to a point where like, wow, this is a culmination event, And then your mind gravitates to some of these short-term pleasures. It would be great if I was sitting on the beach in Nicaragua with my wife and drinking a squishy drink and surfing every day. That's where your mind gravitates towards. And as it should, because that's the dopamine. It's all the great things that we feel when we get to have that relaxing moment. And I've had those moments where I said, wow, I can take a deep breath here. I think what's fascinating is that when I've had those moments, I've realized that it's been really fun to get away and have the monetization moment and get away from everything and just relax. But that as I study myself, this is a self-reflection point, okay? As I study myself, while I'll have the fun of doing that little thing right now in the getaway, it isn't the fulfillment. For me, I am fulfilled as a human through an incredibly purposeful, mission-driven existence by serving other people. And this is my modicum. This is my vehicle. I mean, I'm not smart enough for my vehicle to be through science or through politics or any that kind of stuff. I'm only smart enough to do it through business. If this is my vehicle, then I want to capture it. And a lot of times, even today, I say, why am I subjecting myself to this fire again? This is so hard. And the reason is because I crave the fulfillment. And that fulfillment comes over the very long term. And it's even more fulfilling for me when I realize that it doesn't have an end point. I'm not going to say that I'll never sell my business or businesses, or I'll never sell my real estate or you name it. That would be absolute. And I think that's making a decision in a vacuum. But I will say that my goal set is to create a great place through which humans can thrive and through which we can serve the planet in my businesses. And as long as we're doing that, and we're still sustainable, meaning that we have a profit, then my great proclivity is to continue to build for the long term. Because it's fulfilling for me and it's fulfilling for the people it touches. And I believe in the ripple effect that 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 can be on the world and so that just comes through my own self-reflection. I don't know if that holds for many other people, but you know, I look at some people that have been on the journey for long periods of time and mentors that I've had. Steve Demos, who started White Wave Foods and eventually sold it to Hain. And you know, he ran it for 17 or 20 or 25 years or something like that. And he never made a buck. And along the way, you know, he finally got to the end and it made sense to get to the end. But he built something that stood the test of time and that was a beautiful business. And it was formative to me in my early days. So maybe that's a figure that was a part of that story.
0: Yeah. It's super interesting. I mean, where my mind goes is thinking about infinite games versus finite games and even something like working out where I think for a lot of people, they're like, I want a certain body, but how does working out work? You kind of get that body through exerting a bunch of effort. You don't keep it. (laughs) You don't just walk away. It's about this discipline and the practice and enjoying and becoming a better person and doing good through that work itself, which I think is really interesting. I want to explore, you talked about, wonderful quote, of making sure that you don't launch a business that needs more than one miracle. How has that, I would love to try to make that a little bit more tangible. And maybe there's an example, as you thought about founding and launching Atlas and reactive, maybe it was more conversation with someone that is getting ready to found a business. How have you taken, or how would you take that advice and put it into practice? Like, when do you know that something is not going to require multiple miracles? How do you try to (laughs)
1: make that tangible? You know, tangibly, that might be a tough one. I think that When you say that starting a business and having success of the business is a miracle upon itself, in and of itself, then you're already starting with one miracle. And that's even for a proven industry. The businesses that I've done, some of them have been very proven. I mean, buying real estate and holding it, that's pretty proven. The miracle that we took on in that moment was we were buying it at a moment when everybody thought the world was over. And with Atlas Real Estate, we kind of were telling people, hey, we're going to be a broker, but as a broker, we're going to show you how to buy an investment property. And we're going to be a property manager. And the only thing that's different about us is we own a lot of real estate ourselves. So we'll probably be better as a property manager than the other crew. But you know, you have all these, the, the miracle in it is, can you compete with all these other businesses out there that are amazing? A lot of times I've looked at venture capital style deals, and I've said, those are two miracle deals. I can't do that. And sometimes it's, okay, you're going to have to build the business and hire the people and sell in the market and compete with everybody else. But you also have to frankly tell somebody that your product even exists. Like I don't need to train somebody in real estate that real estate exists. They already know. So I've already won on awareness. Then the only thing that I need to train them on or sell them on is that my features and products and services are better than everybody else. I've already done 80 or 90% of the sale the day I meet them because they already know they should own real estate. And so you think about some of the new businesses that are there that are on the bleeding edge instead of the cutting edge. A lot of those are two miracle deals because the timing associated with getting that product out to marketplace is just prohibitively difficult. Or you need to have copious amounts of money to be able to hang in there until the timing is right. Or you need to have copious amounts of money to be able to go broadly across a large segment of the populace to tell people that this can exist. There's a lot of two miracle deals out there that are some of the most valuable deals, valuable businesses, our world has ever seen. And I admire the people that started them. And I think that they'll continue to happen. I just tend to stay away from two miracle deals. I think that they're too tough as one miracle deals. And I'm trying to weight the cards in my favor a little bit.
0: I think that framing is really interesting. And I love, you know, you touched on it really briefly of seeing venture capital deals as a two miracle deal. And my immediate thought was, no, there are a 100 miracle deals. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> the deals, like you look at an outcome to obviously the bar in that industry, which I'm very familiar with, is becoming a unicorn. And it is absolutely insane to be an investor in some of those deals because they just do not happen at all how you think they would happen. And they're very circuitous and there's super down, there's a lot of lows and a lot of highs and it can take a long time for them to materialize, but it's a fascinating insight because it's just really interesting. And that's also obviously helps drive the return profile and also helps drive the sense that it's a fat tail. If you're investing in 100 miracle deals, you better invest in a lot of them if you want to have even one or two of them (laughs) come to fruition.
1: You know, it's fascinating on the venture side for the common investor, if we said... What's your best risk reward outlook? The common investor isn't able to do a hundred deals in the venture world. And so I just keep on raising my hand to the average Joe and saying, buy a piece of real estate, get your 10, 15% a year for 20 years, and you're going to be just fine. And that's somewhere where I revert to of like, that's almost a no miracle deal. That's something very achievable for many people across the country. Now, there's other ways that we de-risk it, or there's other ways that we add more reward to it, primarily through who's operating that deal, AKA the property management company and the company that helps you find it. And in addition to that, geography. And geography is a really big deal when it comes down to real estate, because if you invest in a place that is not economically growing, then your real estate deal will not economically grow. They're directly related. And it's amazing how few people actually study that versus in a place like Denver or Boulder where we are or all the other markets that Atlas is in, we're sitting there saying, the cards are weighted in our favor because there's a ton of demand coming to these markets and we have constrained supply. Therefore, we're going to get rent appreciation and we're going to get asset appreciation.
0: Now, actually just a side commentary. But now I really want to check out Atlas because I don't have any rental property. It's something I've looked at. So no, <laughs> I need to check that out coming out of this. Because yeah, I've had the same thoughts and it's just extremely challenging as an individual investor to try to do market research, know that you're going to be able to figure out a property, that you're going to be able to negotiate and manage it. It's a long road.
1: You know, I'm going to add one more thing to this, which is one of my greatest mentors and advisors in life is a shared friend, Sina Samantab. And about 10 or 12 years ago, he explained to me on a personal investment strategy, it was like a pyramid. And the base of that pyramid is the biggest swath, it's the foundation. And that base of that pyramid was real estate for him. And then above that was maybe stocks and equities. And it wasn't until he got to the top of the pyramid that he said, that's where my venture capital stuff goes. For the common investor, a lot of times that's the way it should look. Now, if you're a professional investor and you say that you're going to be a venture capitalist, totally different thing. But on a personal finance level, it's amazing how little emphasis we put on our real estate as the foundation point for our financial survival.
0: And how few people, I think as well, are overly opinionated and are only invested in one type of asset class, which is a whole different thing. But I think even just the concept of understanding that there is a pyramid and you shouldn't pick and choose or decide which one you like best. You should just indiscriminately own all assets across that pyramid is still really hard for a lot of people to grasp. (laughs) It's kind of like the barbell method. So I want to go and talk about some advice that you would have for entrepreneurs coming out of this experience. And you talked about that coal walk and how brutal it is to go about building a business. I also know that it's just as brutal to try in business and fail. And there is like, no matter whether the outcome is great or whether the outcome is terrible, it is an extremely trying experience. And I'm curious, one, what your advice is or what your advice would be for when you're talking with an entrepreneur and they're realizing that for the first time or they're in one of those really low point moments where things are really tough and their back is up against the wall. What would you like to have heard in those moments? What's the advice that you give?
1: I think that when you're contemplating starting a business, the first step is to actually have a very honest conversation with yourself and your spouse or people close to you about your station in life and whether or not the timing is right personally. You know, when I started businesses, my first one, I was 21 years old or something, or I don't know how I was young. And somebody said to me, Ryan, in life, you're going to have three things. You got family, you got work, and you got friends. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, choose two. You're not going to be able to do all three. So, you know, I chose work and I chose family. And so I confronted that. That was a personal, like, fact that I had to understand. When I started businesses, I was dead broke, but I didn't have any expenses. I didn't have a wife and kids, and I shared a room for 300 bucks a month, and that was the case for a long time. So I think that assessing where you are and what is required for you to be a healthy, happy human is sort of important when deciding I'm going to make the biggest bet of my life. And sometimes that step is overlooked, the sort of timing step. You usually have a better chance at things younger because you have less responsibility, both financially and otherwise. So that's maybe something to consider. Then the second thing that I would think about is we don't do a good job of training people that it's okay to fail and the biggest thing that you're going to lose if you start a business by far the biggest thing is your time and then you ask yourself okay i lost that time and really it's about shifting your mental mind frame to go from i lost that time to i got an amazing experience or challenge that shaped me as a human and for me that's always been my metric Will this build character? Will this be something that will make me a more dynamic, whole human, whole humanity? It was easy for me to confront that and see the expense of my failure because to me, it didn't feel like an expense. I was going to continue on my journey and the character building of being a person. But for many, the thought of failure and the actual failure is devastating. And it speaks back to, before you begin that journey, understanding where you are personally so that you can cope with those difficult moments. And the stress that I inflicted on my body during a 13-year period in the beginning of building this was totally unhealthy, I'm sure. Yet, I was thriving through it. So for some crazy reason in my head, that was okay. And I think that the final thing that I'd say to that entrepreneur is take the damn risk. I mean, we are paid double, triple for the risk that we take in our life in most occasions. Assess it for sure. But even if you're not totally certain, take the risk. We need more risk takers, more now than ever, in my opinion. And I have been so incredibly rewarded financially and otherwise for the risks I've taken.
0: Amen. That's incredible advice. I want to switch to the next phase of that question, which is you talked about when you first started out, just like with anything, obviously, you have no idea how to balance your ambition and staying sane. And there are plenty of people I know that it just takes you a long time. I feel like I'm still learning that. I'm in the middle of my 30s. I'm still trying to figure out how the hell to balance ambition with all the other things in life. And I know that that's something that every entrepreneur has to grapple with and can be a really tough topic. So I'm curious, how has that changed for you over time? You talked about those first 13 years you were thriving, but also probably weren't taking the best care of yourself. What do you do differently now? And what would be your advice for how to balance those things?
1: I don't do anything differently. You know what, actually, I probably fit on a different spectrum than many on this or a different side of this question. I'm not a big believer in balance. And I'm sure people would cringe at me saying that. I often reflect that I'm either a zero or a one. I'm like a computer code. If I'm on, I only got one gear. It's all the way. If I'm off, it's all the way off. But what I realize actually is I can be on on all things. I consume and I'm with my family voraciously. I do the same with my business. I always, every single time without fail, I am at home by six o'clock, I eat dinner with my family, I spend time with my son, I will not sacrifice that. And the converse of that is that I'm charged up to go to work. Now I've made work fun for myself because I don't have as many fun outlets. I work with people that I love I mean, people say not to work with friends. I've had more success working with friends than any person I've ever met. I mean, I absolutely love it. And I laugh a lot at work. And we have stress relievers all around our environment at all the time for those moments. But I'm kind of like, if I love something, why would I do less of it? I also have confronted that there's just a lot of things I just say completely no to. I don't try to dip my toe in the water. I just say I can't do that. So I have a hard no button on a lot of things because I know how heavy my yes button is.
0: I love that. The question I was trying to ask there is, so there's the whole notion of balance, but I think totally separately from that, there's realizing that you can't go all out without putting good things in. And those good things in can be time to reflect, can be time to meditate, time with friends and family, can be going in a hot sauna, can be going in cold water. And it seems like you are particularly good at that side, I guess. Has that had a substantial change on your performance? And can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you do there?
1: I mean, probably all of the above, and it's had a giant impact on my performance. Probably about four years ago, I got really serious about my diet, not so much around my body, but around my mental aptitude and eliminating brain fog and having great clarity. So. It's a lot of fasting and the food that I eat. I've only been taking cold showers for probably the last four or five years. And I live on a lake where we do ice plunges every weekend in the winter. And about a year and a half, two years ago, I started meditating about an hour a day, mostly just on weekdays, actually. You know, those things do speak to balance. And I'm very healthy in terms of physical fitness and all that. They may seem as though they're balanced. What's interesting is I'm just asking myself, what do I do that makes me feel the most invigorated and alive? And in that sense, it's all the same looking glass. The other thing on this, Daniel, is I do believe in turning off that regimen because sometimes there's like such a didactic commitment associated with those things that it can be exhausting. And if it gets to the point of exhausting, then it is no longer sustainable. And I've thought about that with my companies as well. If we all work to the point of exhaustion all the time, I may be able to do that, but that's pretty unusual. We're going to get to exhaustion and then that's a breaking point. So in my personal life, on those items on the weekends, I let myself kind of do what I want. I'm going to sleep in a little bit. And uh, I don't meditate on the weekends too much. We meditate as a family every week, but that's a short meditation in comparison to a one hour. And I eat and I drink alcohol and I play and love to dance and party and all those things. And so that really enables some of that stress relief and some of the checking the fun box. And so that's been a nice cadence for me, a regimen during the week and peak performance. And then on the weekend, I get to goof off a little
0: hmm <laughs> Spend time with family, recover, recuperate. We're going to go a lot deeper into what we were just covering in the next kind of bonus side of this interview. So to wrap up this one, I mean, we've covered a ton of ground. And to be super frank, I feel like I've got another hour of questions, but we'll leave this one here. We can maybe come back and do another one. So just to ask one closing question, for anyone listening, the people on this podcast are entrepreneurs. They founded business. They're building a business right now. They're in that pursuit. They're in that arena. What final piece of advice, final piece of wisdom, final words Would you leave everyone with?
1: I'm going to give two little things. One we didn't touch on, and I think it's important to touch on it. Reactive, which is my newer business, is a venture capital prop tech style business. And in that respect, weighting risk and reward, I think it's important just to comment on this. At the moment that we're in, in building a venture capital backed business, the risk is just as high as it's always been. It is very likely that I'll be unsuccessful in this business. That's what the percentages say. However, in the moment that we're in, we've never been so well rewarded if we're able to pull off that giant miracle. And so in the same way, I'm still assessing risk and reward. It's just that I'm putting more emphasis on the reward side. The risk is about the same as it's always been, zero. The risk can't get much lower than zero. But the reward side is what tempers that. And so in this moment, the risk-reward assessment just looks a little bit different. And the advice that I would give to somebody embarking on their entrepreneurial journey more than anything else is to do it. I've just been so rewarded in my life through this, even through the failures and the difficult moments. Nike got it right, I guess, when they said, just do it. Although I wish I could come up with something more inspirational. Although, hey, if you've never read the book by Phil Knight, Shoe Dog, there's an entrepreneur's journey. So in that regard, that is a fun book that speaks to an entrepreneur's journey.
0: It's a fantastic place to end it. It's all about the journey. Thank you so much, Ryan. it has been a great conversation.
1: Rock on, Daniel. I've really enjoyed it. I didn't get to ask you one question. So next time I get to pepper you with like 10. (laughs) (laughs) Deal. All right, buddy.
0: For links to everything Ryan and I discussed, as well as our favorite quotes and clips from the episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 43. Skip ahead to the next episode to go behind the scenes with Ryan and learn about his habits and routines, tools, favorite books, and so much more. To hear more incredible interviews with guests like Scott Belsky, Kevin Kelly, and the founders of Titan, Rally, and Primal Kitchen, go to outlieracademy.com to explore more episodes. There, you can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter, Outlier Debrief, where every week we share a few highlights from the latest episode, as well as some of our favorite articles, headlines, and moments from that week. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.